Lesson 10. The Two Narcissisms. The notion of drive, the imaginary in animals and in men. Sexual behavior is particularly prone to the lore, the Ulrich. On Narcissism, an introduction, dates from the beginning of the 1914 war, and it is quite moving to think that it was at that time that Freud was developing such a construction. Everything which we include under the metapsychological rubric emerges between 1914 and 1918. Following the publication in 1912 of Jung's work, translated into French under the title Metamorphose, Symbole de la Libido. Note, the original work, Wandlungen und Symbole de Libido, 1911-12, was translated as The Psychology of the Unconscious. The revised, better known version is that to be found in the collected works of Carl Jung, under the title Symbols of Transformation, 1953-79. to End note. Part 1. Jung's approach to the mental illnesses had an entirely different perspective from Freud's, since his experience was with the gamut of schizophrenias, whereas Freud's was with the neurosis. His 1912 work puts forward a grandiose unitary conception of psychic energy, fundamentally different in its inspiration and even in its definition from the notion developed by Freud under the name of libido. Nevertheless, the theoretical difference is still recalcitrant enough to state for Freud to be struggling with difficulties which one can sense throughout the article. The point for him is to maintain a clearly demarcated usage, these days we would say operational, of the notion of libido, which is essential to sustaining his discovery. On what, in short, is the Freudian discovery based, if not on this fundamental realization that the symptoms of the neurosis reveal an indirect form of sexual satisfaction? Freud had very concretely demonstrated the sexual function of symptoms with respect to neurotics by means of a series of equivalents, the last of which is a therapeutic sanction. With this as a foundation, he always maintained that it wasn't a new, totalizing conception of the world that he was offering, but a well-defined theory based on a clearly, yet entirely new, demarcated field comprising several human realities, particularly psychopathological ones, subnormal phenomena, that is to say, those which normal psychology does not study, dreams, slips, mishaps, which disturb some of the so-called higher functions. The problem which Freud faced at this point in time was that of the structure of the psychosis. How to map out the structure of the psychosis within the framework of the general theory of the libido? Jung gives the following solution. The profound transformation of reality apparent in the psychosis is due to a metamorphosis of the libido, analogous to that which Freud had caught a glimpse of with respect to the neurosis, except that in the psychotic, Jung says, the libido is introverted into the internal world of the subject, a notion left hanging in the greatest ontological uncertainty. It is on account of this introversion that, for him, reality fades into twilight. The mechanism of the psychosis is thus perfectly continuous with that of the neurosis, being intent on the working out, starting off from experience, of extremely well-defined mechanisms, always concerned with its empirical reference, Freud sees analytic theory transformed by Jung into a vast psychic pantheism, 
a series of imaginary spheres each enveloping the other, which leads to a general classification of contents, of events, of the erlebnis of the individual's life, and finally to what Jung calls the archetypes. This is not the path down which a clinical, psychiatric working out of the objects of research can be undertaken. And that is why he now attempts to ascertain the relation which the sexual drives are capable of maintaining amongst themselves, those sexual drives to which he had given such prominence owing to their having been hidden and to their having been revealed by his analysis and the ego drives which up to that point he had not brought to the fore. Can one say, yes or no, whether the one is the shadow of the other? Is reality constituted by this universal libidinal projection which is at the heart of the Jungian theory? Or is there, on the contrary, a relation of opposition, a relation of conflict between the ego drives and the libidinal drives? With his usual honesty, Freud makes it clear that his determination to maintain this distinction is based on his experience of the neurosis. And after all, that is only a limited experience. That is why he says no less clearly than one may postulate at a primitive stage prior to that which psychoanalytic investigation permits one to penetrate, a condition of narcissism in which it is impossible to distinguish the two fundamental propensities, the sexual libido and the ichtriebe. Note, Gesammte Werke 10, Studien 3, Standard Editions 14. End note. They are inextricably mixed together. By summon. Note, by summon usually means together in the same place. End note. Confused and are not distinguishable. Ununtascheidbar by our course analysis. Nonetheless, he explains why he strives to maintain the distinction. First of all, there is the experience of the neurosis. Next, he says, the fact that the distinction between the ego drives and the sexual drives lacks clarity at the moment should perhaps be attributed simply to the fact that the drives constitute, for our theory, the final point. Of reference. The theory of drives is not at the base of the construction, but right up at the top. It is eminently abstract, and Freiliter was to call it our mythology. That is why, with the concrete always within his sights, always putting his own speculative projects in their place, he underlines their limited value. He compares the notion of drive to the highest level notions from physics, matter, force, attraction, which have only been developed in the course of the historical evolution of the science and whose initial form was uncertain, in truth confused, before they were purified and then applied. We are not following Freud, we are accompanying him. The fact that an idea occurs somewhere in Freud's work doesn't, for all that, guarantee that it is being handled in the spirit of the Freudian researches. As for us, we are trying to conform to the spirit, to the watchword, to the style of this research. Freud backed up his theory of the libido with what the biology of his time made available to him. The theory of instincts cannot but take into account a fundamental bipartition between the final ends of the preservation of the individual 
and those of the continuity of the species. What we find in the background is nothing other than Weismann's theory, of which you must remember something from your time spent in philosophy classes. This theory, which hasn't been definitely proved, posits the existence of an immortal substance made up of sexual cells. This would make up a unique sexual line of descent through continuous reproduction. The germplasm would, still according to this theory, be what preserves the existence of the species and what is perpetuated from one individual to the next. In contrast, the somatic plasm would be like an individual parasite which, from the point of view of the reproduction of the species, would have carried on growing in a lateral fashion, with the sole aim of being the vehicle for the eternal germ plasm. Freud immediately makes it clear that his own construction does not pretend to be a biological theory. Whatever value he attaches to this reference, on which he decided to rely until further notice and with reservations, he would not hesitate to abandon it if an examination of the facts within the domain specific to analytic investigation were to render it useless and detrimental. Similarly, there is no reason, he says, to swamp the sexual energy in the as yet unexplored field of the psychic facts. The point is not to seek for the libido a universal kinship with every single psychic manifestation. That would be as if, he says, in a question of inheritance, someone were to invoke as a proof to the lawyer of his rights the universal kinship which, according to the monogenetic hypothesis, links all men together. Note, Gesammete Werke, 10, 144, Studien, 3, 46, Standard Editions, 14, 79. End note. I'd like to make a remark here, which may perhaps seem to you to contrast sharply with those we usually make. But you will see that it'll help us with our task, which is to clarify Freud's ongoing discussion, whose obscurities and impasses he in no way keeps from us, as you have already seen, if only through our commentary on the first few pages of this article. He doesn't offer a solution, but opens up a series of questions into which we must try to penetrate. At the time Freud was writing, there was as he himself says somewhere, no ready-made, note, English in the original, end note, ready-to-wear theory of instincts. Even today, it hasn't been brought to completion, but some progress has been made since the work of Lorenz and Tinbeck, and which justifies these perhaps over-speculative remarks that I'm now going to make. What follows from endorsing the Weismannian notion of the immortality of the germplasm? If the individual which develops is quite distinct from the fundamental living substance which the germplasm constitutes and which does not perish, if the individual is parasitic, what function does it have in the propagation of life? None. From the point of view of the species, individuals are, if one can put it this way, already dead. An individual is worth nothing alongside the immortal substance hidden deep inside it, 
which is the only thing to be perpetuated and which authentically and substantially represents such life as there is. Let me clarify this. From the psychological point of view, what exactly is this individual led to propagate by the infamous sexual instinct? The immortal substance enclosed in the germplasm and the genital organs represented in vertebrates by spermatozoa and ova. Is that all? Obviously not, since what is propagated is, after all, an individual. Only it doesn't reproduce as an individual, but as a type. It only manages to reproduce the type already brought into being by the line of its ancestors. In this respect, not only is it mortal, but it is already dead, since properly speaking it has no future. It isn't this or that horse, but the prop, the embodiment of something which is the horse. If the concept of species is valid, if natural history exists, it is because there are not only horses, but also the horse. This really is where the theory of instincts ends us up. In fact, what serves as support for the sexual instincts on the psychological plane? What is the basic mainspring determining the setting into motion of the gigantic sexual mechanism? What is its releasing mechanism, as Tim Bergen puts it, following Lorenz? Note, the French term here translated releasing mechanism is déclencheur, which means trigger starter, as in starter for a car. It was thought best to make this term consistent with English language works in ethology, despite the connotations which Lacan exploits, borrowed from other semantic fields. End note. It isn't the existence of the sexual partner, the particularity of one individual, but something which has an extremely intimate relation with what I have been calling the type, namely an image. In the functioning of pairing mechanisms, ethologists have proved the dominance of the image which appears in the guise of a transitory phenotype through modification of the external appearance and whose manifestation serves as a signal of a constructed signal, that is to say, a gestalt, which sets the reproductive behavior in motion. The mechanical throwing into gear of the sexual instinct is thus essentially crystallized in a relation of images in I now come to the term you're expecting, an imaginary relation. This is the framework within which we must articulate the libido-tribe and the ich-tribe. The libidinal drive is centered on the function of the imaginary. Try as an idealist and moralizing transposition of analytic doctrine might to make us believe this does not mean that the subject makes his way in the imaginary towards an ideal state of genitality, which would be the ultimate sanction and final source for the installation of the real. So we now have to define more precisely the relations of the libido with the imaginary and the real, and to resolve the problem as to the real function that the ego has in the psychic economy. Manoni. Can I put in a word?
For some time, I've been perplexed by a problem that seems to me simultaneously to complicate and simplify matters. It is that the investment of objects by the libido is at bottom a realist metaphor since it only invests the image of objects, whereas the investment of the ego can be an intra-psychic phenomenon whereby the ontological reality of the ego is invested. If the libido has become object libido, it can then only invest something symmetrical to the ego's image such that we will have two narcissisms according to whether it is a libido which intraphysically invests the ontological ego or an object libido which invests something which may perhaps be the ego ideal and is in any case an image of the ego. We would then have a well-founded distinction between primary narcissism and secondary narcissism. Lacan you do know, don't you, that step by step, I want to take you somewhere. We are not proceeding entirely aimlessly, although I am open to welcome discoveries that we make along the way. I am happy to see our friend Manani taking an elegant jump, English in the original, into the subject. One needs to make one every now and then, but let us first go back to where we left off. What am I trying to get at? to get to grips with this fundamental experience made available to us by the contemporary development of the theory of instincts in relation to the cycle of sexual behavior, which reveals that the subject is there essentially prone to the lure. For example, the male stickleback has to have beautiful colors in its belly and back before the copulation dance with the female can get going. But we can quite easily make a cutout which, even when poorly put together, will have exactly the same effect on the female, provided that it possesses certain markings. Merkzeichen. Sexual behavior is quite specially prone to the lure. This teaches us something which is important in working out the structure of the perversions and the neuroses. 2. Since we've got to this point, I'm going to introduce a complement to the schema that I gave you during that little course on the topic of the imaginary. I pointed out to you that this model faithfully follows Freud's very wishes. He spelled out in several places, particularly in the Traumdeutung and the Abris, that the fundamental psychic agencies should be primarily conceived of as representing what takes place in a camera namely as images, which are either virtual or real, produced through its functioning. The organic apparatus represents the mechanism of the camera, and what we apprehend are the images. Their functions are not homogeneous because a real image and a virtual image are not the same thing. The agencies that Freud constructs should not be taken to be substantial nor epiphenomenal in relation to the modification of the apparatus itself. Hence, the agencies should be interpreted by means of an optical schema, a conception that Freud drew attention to on many occasions, but which, in his hands, never materialized. On the left, you see the concave mirror, thanks to which the phenomenon of the inverted bouquet is produced, 
which I have here transformed since it is more convenient into that of the inverted vase. The vase is in the box and the bouquet is on top. Through the play of reflection of light rays, the vase will be reproduced in the form of a real and not virtual image to which the eye can accommodate. If the eye becomes accommodated to the level of the flowers that we have placed there, it will see the real image of the vase encompassing the bouquet and will give a style and unity to it, a reflection of the unity of the body. For the image to have some consistency, it must be a genuine image. What is the definition of an image in optics? To every point on the object, there must correspond a point on the image. And all the rays issuing from a point must intersect again somewhere in a unique point. An optical apparatus is uniquely defined by a univocal or bi-univocal convergence of rays, as one says in axiomatics. If the concave apparatus is placed here where I am, and the conjurer's little setup in front of the desk, the image cannot be seen with clarity sufficient to produce an illusion of reality, a real illusion. You have to be positioned at a certain angle. Obviously, depending on the various positions of the eye doing the looking, we might distinguish a given set of circumstances which could perhaps allow us to understand the different positions of the subject in relation to reality. To be sure, a subject is not an eye, I've told you that, but this model can be applied because we are in the imaginary where the eye has a great importance. Someone raised the question of the two narcissisms. You are well aware that this is what is at issue, the relation between the constitution of reality and the relation with the form of the body, which Manoni more or less felicitously called ontological. First, let us go back to the concave mirror, onto which, as I've pointed out to you, we could probably project all manner of things whose meaning is organic, in particular, the cortex. But let's not turn it into a substance too quickly, because the point here isn't, as you will see more clearly from what follows, the pure and simple exposition of the theory of the little man inside the man. If I wanted to use it to redo the little man inside the man, there would be no point in my criticizing it all the time. And if I am giving in on that, it's because there is a reason why I'm giving in. The I now, this hypothetical I have been telling you about, let us put it somewhere between the concave mirror and the object. For this I to have precisely the illusion of the inverted vase, that is to say, for this eye to see it under optimal conditions as clearly as if it were at the end of the room, one thing only is both necessary and sufficient, that there be a plain mirror in the middle of the room. To put it another way, if one put a mirror in the middle of the room while I turn my back on the concave mirror, I would see the image of the vase as clearly as if I were at the end of the room, even though I wouldn't see it in a direct manner. What am I going to see in the mirror? Firstly, my own face, 
there where it isn't. Secondly, at a point symmetrical to the point where the real image is, I am going to see this real image appear as a virtual image. Are you with me? It isn't difficult to understand. When you get home, set yourself in front of a mirror, put your hand in front of you. This little schema is only a very simple elaboration of what I've been trying to explain to you for years with the mirror stage. Just now, Manoni mentioned the two narcissisms. First of all, there is, in fact, a narcissism connected with the corporeal image. This image is identical for the entirety of the subject's mechanisms and give his umwelt its form, inasmuch as he is men and not horse. It makes up the unity of the subject, and we see it projecting itself in a thousand different ways up to and including what we can call the imaginary source of symbolism, which is what links symbolism to feeling, to the Selbstgefühl, which the human being, the mensch, has of his own body. This initial narcissism is to be found, if you wish, on the level of the real image in my schema, insofar as it makes possible the organization of the totality of reality into a limited number of preformed frameworks. To be sure, this way of functioning is completely different in men and in animals which are adapted to a uniform Umwelt. For the animal, there is a limited number of pre-established correspondences between its imaginary structure and whatever interests it in its Umwelt, namely whatever is important for the perpetuation of individuals, themselves a function of the perpetuation of the type of the species. In man, by contrast, the reflection in the mirror indicates an original noetic possibility and introduces a second narcissism. Its fundamental pattern, English in the original, is immediately the relation to the other. For the man, the other has a captivating value on account of the anticipation that is represented by the unitary image as it is perceived either in the mirror or in the entire reality of the fellow being. The other, the outer ego, is more or less confused according to the stage in life with the Ich ideal, this ego ideal, invoked throughout Freud's article. Narcissistic identification. The word identification without differentiation is unusable. That of the second narcissism is identification with the other, which under normal circumstances enables man to locate precisely his imaginary and libidinal relation to the world in general. That is what enables him to see in its place and to structure as a function of this place and of his world, his being. Manoni said ontological just now. I'm quite happy with that. What I would precisely say is his libidinal being. The subject sees his being in a reflection in relation to the other, that is to say, in relation to the ich ideal. Hence, you see that one has to distinguish between the functions of the ego. On the one hand, they play for men, as they do for every other living creature, a fundamental role in the structuration of reality. What is more, in men, 
they have to undergo this fundamental alienation constituted by the reflected image of himself, which is the Urich, the original form of the Ich ideal, as well as that of the relation to the other. Is this sufficiently clear for you? I had already given you an initial element of this schema. I am giving you another one today, the reflexive relation to the other. Later on, you'll see what use it may serve, this schema. You're right in thinking that it is not for the fun of it, that I've made up these delightful constructions. It will be extremely useful since it will allow you to locate almost all the clinical, concrete questions raised by the function of the imaginary, and in particular in relation to those libidinal investments whose meanings one eventually ceases to understand when handling them. Reply to Dr. Karnoff's intervention concerning the application of the optical schema to the theory of the state of being in love. The exact equivalence of the object and the ego ideal and the love relation is one of the most fundamental notions in Freud's work, and one comes across it again and again. The loved object, when invested in love, is, through its captative effect on the subject, strictly equivalent to the ego ideal. It is for this reason that, in suggestion, in hypnosis, we encounter the state of dependency, such an important economic function, in which there is a genuine perversion of reality through the fascination with the loved object and its overestimation. You're acquainted with the psychology of love, which Freud so subtly expounded. We are offered such a large, important slice that, as you see, we have scarcely come to terms with it today. But you'll find all manner of things on the topic of what he calls the choice of the object. So you cannot but see the contradiction that exists between this notion of love and certain mythical conceptions of the libidinal ascesis of psychoanalysis. I know not what vague fusion or communion between genitality and the constitution of the real is recommended to us as the culmination of affective maturation. I am not saying that there isn't something essential to the constitution of reality in all this, but one must understand what. Because it is either one or the other. Either love is what Freud is describing, an imaginary function in its very foundation, or it is the foundation and the base of the world. Just as there are two narcissisms, so there must be two loves, Eros and Agape. Reply to Dr. Leclerc's question about the ambiguities concerning the Ich Ideal and the Ideal Ich in Freud's text. We are in a seminar here. We are not professing an ex-cathedra teaching. We are trying to find our bearings and to draw the greatest profit from a text and above all from someone's thinking as it develops. God knows how others, amongst them the best, Abraham and Ferenczi included, have tried to get the development of the ego and its relations to the development of the libido sorted out. This question is the subject of the latest article brought out by the New York School, but for now let's stay with Ferenczi and Abraham.
Freud relied on the article published in 1913 by Ferenczi on the sense of reality. It is very poor. Ferenczi is the one who started to put the famous stages into everyone's heads. Freud refers to it. At that point in time, we are still at the stage of the very first theoretical attempts to articulate the constitution of the real, and the mere fact of receiving a reply was in itself a great help to Freud. Ferenczi brought him something, and he made use of it. The article in question had a decisive influence. It's like repressed things, which have all the more importance for being unknown. Similarly, when some chap writes something truly stupid, it's not because no one reads it that it doesn't have consequences. Because without having read it, everyone repeats it. Some inanities circulate like that, playing on a mixing up of planes which people don't watch out for. Hence, the first analytic theory of the constitution of the real is impregnated with ideas in the air at the time, expressed in more or less mythical terms, concerning the stages of the evolution of the human mind. The idea is to be found everywhere, in Jung also, that the human mind has made decisive progress in very recent times, and that before that we were still at a stage of pre-logical confusion as if it weren't clear that there is no structural difference between the thought of Mr. Aristotle and that of some of the others. These ideas bring with them their power of confusion and disseminate their poison. You can see it clearly in the embarrassment which Freud himself experiences when he refers to Ferenczi's article. When one talks of primitives, of so-called primitives, and of mental patience, it works fine. But where the evolutionary point of view finds complications is with children. There, Freud is forced to say that development is far from being that transparent. Perhaps it would be better, in fact, not to refer here to falsely evolutionary notions. This probably isn't the place for the fertile idea of evolution. It is a question, rather, of elucidating structural mechanisms which are at work in our analytic experience, which is centered on adults. Retroactively, one may clarify what happens in children in a hypothetical and more or less verifiable manner. In taking up this structural point of view, we are directly following Freud, because that is where he ended up. The final development of his theory distanced itself from analogical evolutionary adventures, embarked on through a superficial use of several shibboleths. Actually, what Freud always insisted upon was exactly the opposite, namely the preservation at every level of what may be considered as different stages. We'll try to go one step further next time. Think of all this as a starter. You will come to see its strict relation with the phenomenon of the imaginary transference. 24th of March, 1954.